Video Connoisseur Podcast. As always, this is Matt here, and this week I'm joined by a very special guest, first time on the on the pod here. We have uh, Richard Haas from DTV Digest. Welcome, Richard. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Absolutely. Now, now um, I know I've, I've, I've listened to some of your pods before um, and you know, kind of looked into some of the stuff that you guys do. Uh, what is exactly that you do at the DTV Digest for people that aren't familiar? Uh, well, the main sort of idea is for us to look at uh, the variety of what is available, release director video or streaming services, or basically anything that doesn't get a broad cinema release. So while we cover a lot of uh, genre stuff, primarily uh, action, science fiction, we, we do try and draw attention, not necessarily on the, on the show, uh, but on our social media to a variety of sort of art house releases and uh, LGBTQ kind of stuff, which is all... Uh, kind of very common uh, in the uh, director video sort of realm. Um, so we we have a on our show, we look at at least one main review, which is something that's recently been released. Uh, we'll also profile a short film also recently released because we don't think short films get more enough, enough attention. There's so much great stuff out there, almost too much for us to catch up with, really. Um, and then we, more recently, we started adding a, a throwback feature where we look back at older films, including some like PM Entertainment kind of. Stuff. We looked at The Sweeper as an example, uh, and uh, that's been that's been a lot of fun because until then we've we've mainly just sort of been focusing on more of the newer stuff, and we, we're into our fourth year now, so we keep trying to sort of mix up, mix it up, and uh, complementing it with our Twitter and Facebook stuff where we tell our you know those that are interested about what the latest new releases are every single week yeah you know that's one of the the the, the, the challenges i think sometimes right is that there's so much new stuff coming out and you want to spotlight that new stuff mm. but then on the other hand uh there is so much in the past that yeah that is, is great to look at and with the the proliferation of streaming services especially now people have more access to that but i think people also that you know they have fun going to old vhs bins and seeing what they can find as well yeah we, we're, we're spoiled now with like amazon you know prime uh, and uh, netflix not so much they don't tend to get as many older titles especially not dtv older titles i think like on uh in terms of what we've got access here in the UK, there's like a, a Thomas Ian Griffith movie called Behind Enemy Lines, which I want to catch up with. And uh, there's some older stuff like um, Revenge of the Ninja, which possibly was theatrically released. I'm not sure. But for the most part, they're really focusing on 
new new content or as you know content as you would call it uh, new releases or very recent releases whereas amazon i find personally is much better because it's a much broader uh, spectrum of, of films in there of you know so uh, i like bollywood and stuff so i mean netflix is good for bollywood as well but amazon's quite good for that and recently some of the uh, uh, amazon originals have been a bit more interesting i think on on Amazon, but uh, there's one called like The Vast of Night. I think it looks quite interesting. Um, we're going to try and cover that at some point. Um, but yeah, the, there's the the main problem is that it's just too much to try and cover. You know, we 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 record every single week, and you know, there's still just there's not enough hours in the day. You know, we we we've both got families, uh, and so it can be quite hard to sort of keep up. So we have to be very selective. But we went all out recently on a on a John Travolta uh, episode where we just tried to because we've been meaning we watched like one one Travolta film over the last few years and we're just like we've really got to catch up and see like Gotti and Speed Kills and all and all that stuff and especially the Fanatic which was the, the main reason we were doing it uh, so we just did it for like a week just watched uh, I think it was like five five Travolta films and just recorded this special episode about it, which was a lot of fun because we, we don't get a chance to do that enough, really. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because, it, yeah, with, with a lot of those big stars that have gone to DTV and there's, like, so so many options out there, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to know. Like, Bruce Willis, I think, is a big one. It's, like, almost like this siren song, right, where you see yeah. him on the cover and think, okay, this might be good, and then it's, like, some kind of, you know, uh, uh, paint by numbers deal that's filmed in Michigan or Louisiana or something where he's barely in it and he's not doing his reverse shots and you feel like, oh, you know, I, I wasted that time. But by the same token, you feel like you want to do something right with that time where you want to make something out of it, uh, you know, make a review, make a, a, a podcast episode. But it, it can be hard when you're trying to, when, like you said, there's so much out there and you're going off of just often very little information on, 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 on what to pick to, to watch. Yeah, and a lot of that is based on our, our, you know, our experiences and our on our particular interests. So, the, you know, the action stuff is always kind of at the forefront for myself and uh, Mike Parkin, who's uh, he's actually the, the driving force behind the show. He's the, he's the he set it up and uh, he you know he edits all the episodes. And that he just invited me on board, and I sort of play, I'm like co-host and sort of key researcher, I guess in a way. Or for what we're trying to achieve um and uh so yeah we, we we're both very much into action and and the kind of you know like the steam cigar film we're going to talk about today the that kind of stuff but we try to you know mix it up with horror science fiction bit of drama you know a bit of indie uh, every now and again and yeah and it's been uh, going back to what we were just saying about like Travolta and that, you, Bruce Willis is another good example, really. Of he does so he does so many, but we haven't yes. actually really covered many of them. We're, we're actually not that attracted to a lot of the films that he's been producing, but we do think right, we've got to do an episode where we do dig into these a little bit because it, you know there might be little um, little diamonds in there somewhere. We were certainly very pleasantly surprised with the John Travolta stuff we did. Yeah. No, no, did you, you said, did you, did you end up watching Gotti? Because I haven't seen that one yet. I've been curious about it. Yes. Uh, and uh, it may be based on, you know, not uh, being 
not having high expectations because of all the negative press and that, but really I had no problem with it whatsoever. I mean, I, I, I thought it was a perfectly fine gangster movie. I mean, we watch a lot, you know, the DTV realm is <laughs> full of gangster movies and this one was, uh, you know, very well produced, I thought, you know, good, good production values and I thought Travolta's performance was absolutely fine. Yeah, the funny thing about that movie, a, a few years ago, so here in Philadelphia, where I live, um, there's a, an area they call the Italian market area, which is sort of like a, it's an outdoor market part where there's all kinds of, um, you know, produce, and, and then there's little shops nearby that sell, like, fancy charcuterie, things like that. And I remember seeing an ad for the, the Travolta Gotti picture there in the Italian market. I guess they must have thought that with a lot of Italian-American community there that they would be drawn to something like that. Um, don't know how it turned out. I don't know if, if you know, I was like, I don't remember it, it getting that kind of, um, I don't want to say, I don't remember it getting, if it was, if there was a screening here in, in, in Philadelphia, it was a very small one. Uh, I think it was, like you said, it was mostly direct-to-video, but they were advertising it, like, get out and see this movie. Uh, so I was like, oh, I should check it out. I'm kind of curious about this. And then I just kind of lost track of it over time. Yeah, and they were, they were also trying to flip the negative marketing and say, come and see it, make up your own mind. This right. is the movie they don't want you to see or something like that, you know. Um, right. Which uh, I know, I think, like, um, the Screen Junkies Honest trailer, uh, trailer, I think they were sort of digging into that quite a lot. Um, but I'd say, yeah, yeah, I had no problem with it. I mean, I, I, I feel like I rediscovered Travolta over that, you know, the experience of making that episode. So. I've always liked him, and I went back to some of the older stuff like Broken Arrow as well, and just remind me how good, how good a screen presence he can be, um, especially in Broken Arrow, a highlight. Uh, yeah. One of the best 90s action films there, I think. Yes, yeah. You know, the funny thing about Broken Arrow, um, so it's got this guy Howie Long in it, who used to play mm. NFL here in the United States, and his son played in the NFL. His son, um. Oh, now I can't think of his name, which is horrible, because he played, he actually played here in Philadelphia, he played for the team that I root for in the New England Patriots as well, mm-hmm. and um, the fact that I can't think of his name is, is, is horrible, because I still listen to a podcast, and he would joke about things like he, I think he met Christian Slater, um, and kind of gave him a hard time for kicking his dad out of a train, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and some of those kinds of things, but um, I think he, he does joke about his dad's movie career, though, when, when he talks about it, so, um, but it, it is kind of funny hearing those little anecdotes that, like, now that he became a famous uh, NFL player, he started meeting some of these people that starred in these movies with his dad, like Broken Arrow, and, um, you know, would kind of, you know, talk to, the, to them about the experience for them. And, of course, there's a little tie-in there with the film we're going to talk about today because Howie Long was in Firestorm, which was from the same director as The Patriot, Dean Semler. Yeah, yeah. And and that's, you know, it's interesting, you know, as we, we, we talk about this, you know, the, the whole direct-to-video aspect of, of Seagal's career, um, mm. the funny thing about The Patriot is I did not realize until very recently that it was a direct-to-video movie. I, I think I had it confused with some of the other ones, like Fire Down Below um, and The Glimmer Man, and I think I just I just assumed it had been in the theater. Um, but it, it actually, at least it was direct-to-video here in the United States, as far as I know. Yes, well, it, I mean, over there, oh, sorry, over where you are, right. <laughs> uh, I believe it was the it was the first Seagal film to go direct-to-video. We actually had his previous film, Fire Down Below, direct-to-video. Uh, that was the first one over here. The Patriot originally went to satellite television, uh, like almost like you know equivalent cable television, basically. So there was uh, this. We've got a channel over here called Sky, 
currently called Sky Cinema, back then it was called Sky Movies, and they did deals to get films that were not uh, not available elsewhere at, at the time. So what is currently the common practice with Netflix originals and you know Amazon originals and stuff of where they buy the rights to show the movie, they were doing it, they did it back then in uh, 19, like 1998, 1999, I think it was, as a, a Sky Movies exclusive, they tagged it. So it was on there first. So that's when I, that's where I first saw it. And then it came out on, I think it was, it was on VHS and DVD uh, a short while after that. So um, that was kind of the beginning of Cigar. That was the second uh, sort of uh, Stephen Cigar DTV movie over here. So even at that point, you know, we have, we're not even into the 2000s yet. This is like 1998, 99 sort of time. Cigar's career was essentially over in the United Kingdom, really, as a, as a as a major box office draw. Yeah, and it's interesting in the United States because, you know, this was the first DTV for him. Um, like I said, I just thought mentally that it was a, a theatrical release, just because I'm not really remembering that time. But I also remember at that time, mentally, for me, kind of feeling like, okay, you know, Seagal, it's, it, you know, like what, you know, these movies just keep, see, seem to come out all the time and they're kind of the same thing. So I really never thought much of them. I would just, you know, see them in the, in the, the video store and rent them and be like, oh, this will be fun for movie night. Um, but I remember, so looking at his DTV bio, it lists the ticker as a 2001 film and then also um, the, uh, um, oh boy, I'm drawing a blank here, the um, um, Exit Wounds as 2001. Yeah. I have to assume the ticker was filmed be- before that because they, they list it slightly above it or they list it above it. Um, and that would make sense that maybe in between the Patriot and Exit Wounds, he's trying to make his way. He had the, these issues because he, he left Warner Brothers and he was trying to make a I don't know, he's trying to go on, go on, on his own, I guess, as a, as yeah. a, you know, yeah. And I guess there's the falling out with that producer, which unfortunately that doesn't seem to be a bit of a hallmark in Seagal's career. He, he, he used to make a lot of really great friends. There's a lot of people that are very close with him and, and, and make movies and, and, and work with him a lot. But then there seems to also be this, this other aspect where there's people that, uh, you know, it doesn't always work out with him. Um, and I think it was in that window that, that things weren't working out that, he had that kind of that, that time off, but Exit Wounds come, come, came out here in the United States, and it was um, it was a pretty good success for him. Uh, hmm. Globally, I think it made about 29 million past its budget, and I think there was a thinking that okay, maybe there is a market for Seagal here, and they essentially try to make the same movie and ha- well, not not exactly the same movie, but kind of a, a similar uh, paradigm in in in, um, in Half Past Dead, yep. and. It, it just it, it didn't do that way, and that pretty much from that point on, unless you count Machete, which uh, he, was, he only has a small part in that, but essentially from there, he's just been DTV throughout. So I guess he had like one little last gasp here in the United States, whereas in England, he, had, he was a little bit before that, that he was he was relegated to DTV. Well, I'd say um, Exit Wounds, I, I did forget about. Uh, he was back in cinemas for that one. Ticker came out afterwards, but I think you're right the, that it was probably made first that would make sense because it was kind of a wilderness period between 1998 and uh 2001 uh the ticker's an interesting one you have you watched ticker yes you so the ticker? Pion, yes yeah with Dennis yeah, so, Hopper and all, yes it's quite a credit crew that's though. quite interesting because they got the um the original release but then albert pune did his own uh you know privately released uh recut which doesn't feature any of the stock footage that they pasted in from all the other new image movies to kind of try to bulk up the budget. 
so it actually makes it quite different so and he's changed some of the visual effects and stuff so that's quite and he added commentary that i think on it obviously well that's quite interesting but the the whole film is so low budget and properly dtv uh, partly probably in part because they had to pay the salaries of so many names in that movie um i mean seagal's in uh he's he's and steven seagal but he's you know he's he makes his present felt in that movie uh playing the zen bomb disposal guy who also uh appears in a secondary role where he's playing his blues song love doctor where he's wearing a fake beard and stuff like that so oh and, it, and it's got like his dogs in it and stuff it's got loads of loads of little segalisms in it but the but yeah exit wounds was kind of the opposite because it was almost it was like a big budget movie and Seagal had to play by like Joel Silver's rules and it wasn't it didn't dwell too much on what makes uh, what Seagal's interested in uh, so a film like The Patriot is very much his project and it you know it's, it's his thing it's almost like you can't imagine anyone else making this movie but Exit Wounds it was kind of like well you know we're, we're gonna hedge our bets we're gonna uh, put him with DMX we're gonna make it this kind of uh, procedural drama you know there's not going to be any you know preaching or espousing of any particular beliefs or anything in this it's just kind of a straight down the middle thriller uh, and we're going to make Seagal do some wirefu and stuff with it which didn't really work and that. so for me as, as a Seagal fan I never really liked Exit Wounds but I'm actually really interested in Ticker despite all its flaws I'm quite fascinated by that film um, but the last hurrah for his you know for his big sort of theatrical quality movies for me the best one was uh this one the patriot because this yeah. is a favorite of mine yeah and and it does have you know it watching it, it it definitely does not feel like a 90s dtv film it feels like a 90s theatrical quality um i know mm. you were talking about doing you know more pm entertainment and I, i've been doing some more of that kind of thing myself on the site and it, there's a certain quality to the film stock and also a certain pacing with a DTV action film of that time where this one, I, I mean, I have a feeling this was probably a longer film. I mean, it was, it was shot. It, it was, you know, the, the, the cut that I watched was a 90 minute version yeah. um, that I'm streaming. I have a feeling this was probably meant to be more in the hundred to 110 minute range with more going on in it. And it just, they just kind of truncated it because the way things were developing and then sort of things were happening much quicker. I think it, they, 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 they meant for there to be a little bit more there. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have any, you know, factual basis for that. It's just the way the movie felt uh, in watching it. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, over here it plays even less than that because uh, due to the uh, transfer into uh, PAL, the, the, although it's a 90 minute, it's a 90 minute film, but over here it plays as an 86 minute film because uh, everything's, in, uh, in very very slightly speeded up so the film actually ends after about 81 minutes which is probably shorter than pretty much every other Steven Seagal movie especially considering the you know the plot and how much is happening in the film it's it's all it all takes place very quickly plus uh, as I think we'll get into a, a bit later you know there's 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 a lot of unanswered questions in the movie which you think well they probably had a lot of background and you know exposition or whatever that they seem to have decided to actually leave on the cutting room floor but it does it was made as a, a theatrical movie it was 
Seagal's first uh, independently made film. So he'd separated from Warner Brothers. Uh, he'd got independent financing. He was still working with Jules Nasso. This was their final, uh, not, not their final collaboration, but the final time that they produced a star vehicle for Steven Seagal. So it's, it's quite a milestone in that sense as well. Um, and they also, and they got direct, uh, uh, Dean Semler, who mentioned a short while ago, who previously directed Firestorm, which I also love. Two, two of my favorite movies from this period, both directed by Dean Semler, in, uh, both very short running times, both shot in, you know, gorgeous uh, out, outdoor locations, you know, the, with the pretty decent casts, I think, as well. Um, they've got, they're both very, very good, very entertaining, very fast-paced films. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so the, I've kind of, I just, before we get too much into that, do you want to sort of just sort of set up what the, what the plot is uh, of the film? Yeah, let me, I'll give like a kind of a shortened version. We'll kind of, you know, kind of see, you know, the, I guess the, the basic premise is, is that um, Seagal is living in a small town in Montana and he works as a well, he's he's a PhD in immunology, but he's working more as like an herbalist and helping people um, through through uh, alternative medicine in the town in Montana. At the same time, there's a what would be now called an alt right um, separatist group. At the time, we would just you know call them sort of white supremacists, something along those lines. They are um, they they get their hands on a government created bioweapon and unleash it in this town, this small town here. And it looks like when the government goes in, they've got the whole thing under control, but we find out that this virus has mutated and really Seagal, as, as the immunologist, he's the only one that has the ability to, to, to solve it and, 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 and save the town. Of course, this white supremacist group wants the, the antidote that uh, Seagal may or may not be able to produce. Uh, they want it for themselves, right? So they want to make themselves better and not save everybody else. So that's, I guess, where the tension comes in. Can he save everybody? Plus, can he do it while the white supremacist group is in it for their own uh, interests? I think that's probably, I guess, a, the, the, the basis there. Um, but but yeah, uh, uh, Richard, what did you think of the film overall? Yeah, well, as, as I say, it's one of my favorites. But the, in the summary there that you've, you've, you've just given, there's two sort of key things to, to mention. One is that uh, Dr. Wesley McLaren is, say, this former uh, government oh, right. uh, immunologist who's who's in this small town, and the the bio bioweapon belonging to you know the people he used to work for just happens to get released in the same small town <laughs> yes. that he's living in of all the places in the world. So that's a massive coincidence. It seems so. Whether there's something in the in the lot in a, a potentially longer cut or longer script that it details that, because at the fir at first it just seems everything seems really too uh, coincidental, especially when it goes to the part where they go and find the uh, underground research facility, which is in the in the hills. Uh, but at that it, it's at that point, which is about an hour into the movie, I think. Um, it's at that point where you see there's a there's a picture on the wall and it says uh, Dr. McLaren's uh, uh, was it? Oh, I can't remember the. Uh, oh, the this, it's a, he's a they call him the king of the bugbusters. 
and they, they, they've got this picture on the wall of him lassoing a bug and I can't remember what it was called uh, off the top of my head but it was, it was, I'm sure it comes to me at some point anyway so he's been there before right so he's worked there so that makes sense now I think right okay he used to work for the government he probably relocated to that facility that's where he worked so that makes sense of why he's there he lived he met his wife who has since passed away and they've had a child uh and that sets up the whole thing but they but but you don't they don't explain any of that so it will just you have to infer it from like one small moment if you're paying attention and really want to dig into it like me (laughs) um but apart from that it just sort of seems really uh off kilter uh the the militia want to get their hands on mclaren's daughter holly because she's immune to it but they never they never focus on the fact that mclaren's immune as well right. <laughs> he never gets the virus and they and they, at no point I, I think as far as i'm aware at no point in the story do they say oh well i'm not feeling ill either <laughs> right it's fascinating because yeah. it's almost like seagal is this like sort of like this super uh, uh, presence within the story that it's like it, it's it's as if like well of course Seagal wouldn't get sick yeah. right like right because we, we, you know the daughter and then when he goes to see his his uh, I think it's is that a younger sister because she refers to his um, his grandfather his grandfather as well um, or maybe that's his that's his uh, sister-in-law sister-in-law okay right and so so they um yeah so 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 you know that they they also are are um, immune as well. And, and of course, they, they do make one light reference to uh, uh, back in, um, in in the 19th century, the U.S. in trying to clear out the Native American populations, which is very, very almost never touched upon in American history books when you're learning American history in, in school here in the United States. But um, one technique that they tried to use to kill off the Indian population was to, and the Native American population was to give them. Uh, blankets that were infected with smallpox and mm-hmm. um and and so they mention it right the the the, the sister-in-law mentions it very yeah. briefly about yes this is maybe revenge for the smallpox thing yeah um but it, it's it you know the, that uh, the u.s's history with with with, with the native american population is something that our our culture is very self you know like it, it's it's they, they're trying to get better about it now and of course now there's this whole thing with uh christopher columbus where people are starting to revisit um mm-hmm. you know celebrating him in the united states uh, but you know, at that time for the late '90s, that would have been a, a, a big thing. Because I remember in high school, so I, this would have been after I was high school. I was in high school. I was in high school in the mid '90s. I remember bringing that piece up to one of my teachers, or some not not me, but another classmate, and she was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I guess that that would have been considered biological warfare, you know, or something." But um, uh, so it's it's almost like they were trying to say that it was part of a whole tradition, which I don't know if I'd consider that part of a tradition. That would seem more like an opportunistic way to kill off a lot of people um, that were, just, you know, um, but it, it was a mention there, and and we're supposed to think that right that it's it's possibly their genetics that are are are, are helping them. Um, until Seagal finds out that that's not what it is, right? That it's not their genetics, no. but there's there's something else there. That the grandfather, who is a, an herbalist himself, um, found a flower that seems to be uh, the key to, to saving everything. Um, and it, it's it's almost like there was almost a sense there. I think they they did a little bit of a better job with with him, you know, trying to figure it out and making mistakes and not keying in on the T right away. Um, yeah, because if you think if you think about it, although he's the best. I'm immunologist in the world, you know, 
there is no second guy on the list. <laughs> and the, the despite all that, he actually doesn't find the cure. The cure kind of comes to him, and then he has, and then he re- realizes, oh, actually, was so the it which when you think about it, actually does reinforce the view that the that he's putting forth in the film, which is that medicine, you know, and ph- pharmaceuticals or whatever, that that's not the answers aren't there. Uh, so he's, you know, he's walked away from that because he, you know, he didn't want to do it anymore. And he, he, he says in the film that he'd, you know, he'd done some bad things in the past and, you know, what they, with the usual kind of cigar stuff of the, you know, he's got these, uh, this checkered past and he, he created these things and possibly like this virus was some, you know, could have been made or, you know, elaborated on from work that he'd originally conducted. But, uh, He's he's kind of left that all behind, and he's working as a as a what we would call over here a general practitioner, but with an emphasis on uh, holistic therapies as well. The and they pepper the throughout the film they pepper these references to the what they term the red medicine to sort of you know leave almost you know that kind of the Chekhov's gun kind of thing as they, they sort of leave it in there. But they they mention it quite subtly I think for the most part, and I think it works quite nicely. The problem that, the, if we can sort of move, uh, if you don't mind me yes, sort of no, moving absolutely. on slightly. So the film went uh, direct-to-video, it, you know, people were, it wasn't received very well. And that's because it's not a typical Steven Seagal action movie. Yeah. Uh, although Seagal is, you know, all over it, you know, his footprints and whatever, all over it, it's very much a companion piece to On Deadly Ground, really. You know, he almost could have directed it. But in terms of the action quotient, it's almost like polar opposite to what, on you know, On Deadly Ground was like full-on action, like for so much of the running time. Uh, and it quite extreme, intense action. And in this one, you get a couple of moments of quite extreme action. Uh, but for the most part, it's very, you know, very light. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's not really any, any action at all for people to, to sort of, get on with which uh, which is what people found quite difficult i think and why they thought they wouldn't be able to sell it particularly well yeah and i mean you you know i know for me i was thinking to myself cause when i watch this i i watch you know having recently been watching a, a lot of pm entertainment films and and whatnot i think my brain is sort of permanently velocitized where it's like if i don't see an action scene every 10 minutes the film is is, is bogged down in my mind but yeah, I mean, you don't get the first plot point until about a half hour in when the virus starts to take hold, and then you don't get your first action scene until about 45 minutes in. And I think you can even count on one hand how many actual action scenes there are. And there's almost yeah. a sense, too, when you get these action scenes that they're – I don't I – don't, maybe grafted in might be the best yeah, way to think of it. That, no, yeah, that, that, you know, we don't know why Dolph is – I'm not sorry, uh, why Seagal would be a, a – you know, a, a – have this kind of martial arts ability that that that's something that there is no no checkoffs gun for that right they're not even like showing him doing tai chi no. uh, you but know, that's just kind of they, they, uh, that's <laughs> the case for pretty much most of uh, of the some of the, the i mean look at on deadly ground right where he was supposed to i mean where his job is really not very ex- well explained because it's like well, well he's kind of a right hand man but he does a bit <laughs> of engineering but yeah he's this you know uh, oh, then they, later on in the movie they go, oh yeah, he's an ex-CIA, you know, sort of thing. But the, 
yeah, that's kind of what they, they always do. So I don't really mind that too much. But what you're saying about the action being put in, I think, you know, there's certain expectations that the, when they were getting funding for the movie, that uh, which, again, the budget might also be a reason why there's not as much action. But also, I think the action that there is, they probably said, well, Stephen, you can't make a film with no action. Yeah. So, you know, we've got to have, we've got to have a big gunfight here or whatever. So, so when the militia led by Floyd Chisholm, comes to the hospital. You know, they, they all guns blaze and they're just shooting everyone up for literally no, no reason whatsoever. They could have just walked in there holding a few guns and, and, you know, that would have got the job done. They really didn't need to to start shooting everyone. Made no sense whatsoever. But it gave, it gave them some, you know, explosive shots for the trailer. Yeah, and of course, too, you, you think about from a, a U.S. military standpoint that um, it would be <laughs> at that time in the late 90s, of course, you know, it was, you know, pre 9-11 United States. So there, um, I think, you know, the, the militia idea that was kind of like the the uh, you know, the boogeyman, I guess, to think about, you know, for for Americans that, you know, cause there had been some issues of state sponsored terrorism, especially the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that idea that they could just walk in and just take out uh, train um, U.S. military personnel as easily as they did. I mean, it just seemed like these guys had, you know, they're sitting there holding their their their, their assault rifles, and they're just like turning around, getting picked off by these militia guys who were just kind of marching in. Um, it would, it you know, it, I think at that time there was a feeling that that yes, that that you know, the you. you I guess there was a, a sense that maybe a group like that could do something like that. Um, uh, to maybe in a, a small segment of the population, I think for for the rest of us, we'd go like, no, they, they, those guys would get killed eventually. You know, they, there'd be enough troops there to take them out. Um, so it was kind of funny how it quickly they 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 were able to lay siege to that hospital and take it over, so that nobody, you know, that th- those trained military were, were just taken out. But but Segal was able to manage to escape and and, and get away um, with with his daughter. So he was able to make good and get out of that situation. Yeah, by grabbing her and jumping with her through a window. <laughs> Yes, yes. Cool. yes, just kind of out of nowhere, boom, they're through the window. Um, but that's, now, that's kind of where the plot, you know, you think the plot is going to be all about protecting his daughter then. But even that bit, you know, that, that part of the story ends really quickly. And then, and then it moves on to the next bit. It, and after that first, after, once you get to the hospital and all that kind of stuff happening, the movie jumps forward, in, you know, very quickly. It's very fast paced. And I think that's where you can say, well, it looks like we possibly had uh, either they cut the you know cut it cut down the script or whatever for, or or they cut scenes to make it a bit shorter because that's uh, as I think you you were saying earlier it moves at like a rapid pace. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now one of the things too when when we move from them escaping the hospital, um, so so Seagal has or you know uh, Seagal's character has this friend um, that that he. Uh, works with who's played by um, that, um, LQ, LQ Jones. LQ Jones. I was gonna say Jones. Yeah, um, Frank. Frank, who uh, who helps him out. And one of my w- one of the cliches that I, I hate the most in in action movies uh, is when the friend or the partner gets killed. 
Uh, it just right. seems like it's the most dangerous thing. I mean, it was more dangerous than having the virus, I think, was to be Seagal's friend. Because <laughs> you were eventually it was going to happen. Now, one thing they did do that was interesting here was that it was almost like it was his fault that he got killed because he got cocky, right? He he takes out this group of militiamen. He throws a uh, – one, one of the really nicer action bits in the film. He he throws um, a, a load of dynamite at, at this caravan, at this two-truck caravan of militiamen that are coming to – Seagal's ranch. Yeah. And he blows up the first truck into the, I think it, it kind of blows into the other one, I think. It's almost like they're kind of uh, just sort of all toppled. And then when the guys that can that do survive get out, he's able to pick them off with a rifle. Mm-hmm. And um, the problem is he, he thinks he's got them all. And he starts dancing around, and then Seagal shows up and sees him with his back to them, and he gets he gets shot. Um, that was an interesting twist on it because usually it is just just by virtue of helping the hero, um, this person in the in the film usually ends up getting killed. Um, but at least in this case, maybe you know uh, the way Seagal wrote or the way it was it was it was, it was portrayed was that it was it, he was part of his own undoing in this case as opposed to just by virtue of helping out the hero he gets killed. Yeah, and it was it's quite eloquently done that scene because uh, uh, Frank gets shot and then we get a nice. Uh, shot of uh, the of Frank's hat blowing along the ground. You know, some some really nice touches I think in in the film, which you know elevates it beyond you know beyond some of the other stuff. I mean, even some of well, even a lot of um, Seagal's similar theatrical productions. I would say it's got it's it's a very Western influenced movie, and it starts out with Seagal and Frank. You know, riding the horses and and, and lassoing the, uh, uh, I think it's a cow. And he's got to give it some medicine and stuff. And then you know, you've got all the lovely vistas and you know, the ranch, which was actually uh, the ranch that they shot on, was Seagal's own ranch, called. Uh, let me check what it was called. Um, Sun something. Sun Ranch or something. I think anyway. So it's on the sort of backs onto. Yellowstone National Park, and it's the yeah, it looks looks a really lo- lovely looking uh, place, and so Frank helps him out there, but he also helps him out with pretty much everything else that he might want to do. So because because uh, Wesley's not just the the doctor, he's also this you know rancher farmer sort of character as well. So he's a busy guy, he's a single father as well. Got a lot, he's got a lot going on, so he needs Frank around to to help him out, and they're like a they're almost like an old married couple, right. you know. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're good, and I love Q. Jones because he's a proper. I mean, the only sort of other person they could have possibly put in that role would have been like Sam Elliott, I think. Yes. But Q. Jones is just so weathered and perfect as the <laughs> as the cowboy character. He's just brilliant. Yeah, and I feel like here he got a little bit of a bigger part because usually he just kind of plays like that one note ranch hand who's in in a movie for for a shorter period, and it felt like here he got a little bit more room to work in, in this, which might have attracted him to a role like this. That because he does a lot of big screen films, I mean he's he's in a lot of stuff. So I, I wonder if maybe that that attracted him to this that he got to do a little more. It wasn't it was a good role for him, I think. I mean I haven't actually watched uh, I haven't seen a lot of his work. But you know, the, for me, this is you know a great role for him, uh, and it was. I'm, I mean, I'm not a Western fan, so I, I, I'm not actually drawn to westerns, but I quite like films that are contemporary but influenced by westerns. 
so like what you almost what you'd say the modern day western this sort of touches on that but it, it's not you couldn't call it a, a western really in any sense it just sort of touches on those tropes a bit this is and this is probably another reason why it wasn't massively saleable in in the views of, of many is that it's basically outbreak the dustin hoffman movie but on a on a much smaller scale there's a, a whole uh sort of midsection of outbreak is this small town uh, being locked down and they they basically just copied that same concept and just made it a bit broader and added in a bit of uh adding basically added in a bit of on deadly ground because the whole you know getting on the horse you know packing yourselves up on the horse and he's got he's got somebody with him uh and uh, they go off to you know sort it all out and everything that's just a straight lift you know it's just they've just copied that and then Seagal having a few of his little speeches you know sharing a few of his views even so the militia are the bad guys in the movie but he, at one point he does say that actually he he's not against what they're what they're what what they're about with some of their views and that in terms of you know defending your homes you know rights to bear arms and all that sort of stuff i think which is something he's you know possibly one of the reasons why um Segal is not actually a resident of the united states anymore right. uh, now that he's in, in russia but uh, i don't i don't know if that was i think he moved out i think he moved out during obama's uh, administration rather than trump's i'm not sure how he feels about trump but but um anyway that'd be quite interesting but the yeah but yeah this was um uh, i've kind of gone off on a, on a bit of a a that's, okay. there. <laughs> that's good that's good no no i was going to agree with you yeah i i think you know i think there were messages that he was trying to say about what you know what we call big pharma um you know and and sort of the medical industrial complex which in in the late 90s i think we we didn't quite know to the degree that we know now especially in the united states where where everything is 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 commodity you know there, there, it, it, where you know everything it's privatized healthcare here in the united states to, to a large extent and so um you know now people have better understandings of, of how that works but i think in the late 90s it would have been a harder sell the idea of, of big pharma you know out there trying to do things you know trying to you know, like, like, what was the, what was the message that that Seagal had at one point? He's like, uh, the medical industry is there to 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 keep you sick, as a, or yeah. you know, yeah. Um, I thought it was a great line as well. Uh, they're in the they're in the uh, uh, business of uh, you know keeping you keeping you sick, and I'm I'm I just want to make you well, kind of thing. I can't remember what the exact quote was, but I thought it was really nice. Uh, all that all that kind of part is done really well. I don't know. If, I know you've seen Attrition fairly yes. recently. Uh, but I thought it was quite interesting that he basically re re uh, rebooted or reworked that character, the Wesley McLaren character, into attrition because he's playing the same role basically of this former, you know, in that case, uh, a former uh, agent or you know special ops guy or whatever, who's now a healer uh, and he's you know doing all that same kind of medicine you know, looking after people and, you know, there's a couple of, some of the same messaging is in that, is, is in that film, which I, again, uh, I think Attrition is actually one of, one of the best films he's made since The Patriot. It's, it's actually got quite a theatrical, nice, you know, nice quality where they've actually paid a lot of attention and, and Seagal is actually quite committed to the role. One of the things I love about this one, as one of the last hurrahs really, 
is, you know, you can tell Seagal cares about it. You know, he's he, he is the old old Seagal where he's actually getting worked up and, you know, he gets a bit mean. He, he smiles. He's got a great relationship with his, you know, his daughter. You know, he's having jokes and, you know, he's smiling and stuff. You know, we, we watch a lot of the recent Seagal stuff or you know, the post-2000 stuff. He's just, you know, phoning it in is generous, you know, because he's, he's, often he's not there at all. And I'm saying this is a hardcore fan, you know, it's, it's like it's really, you know, it's, you, you really don't get much out of him in, in most of it. And in this one, you know, he's just, he gets, I think it's great. I think it's good that it's not as action packed, but because I think it, it shows a different kind of movie. That's why I think it's such a great companion piece to On Deadly Ground, because they, they do the same things but in a very in in a very different way and, and if this i mean this, the patriot was released as an 18 certificate film over here which is a real shame because i think like, it, it's there's really very little to to warrant that i think i think it's the wine glass in the head yes that tips yes, it over because we would have got that as i think if it if it wasn't for that i think it would have been a 15 certificate over here possibly um if they'd have toned down the violence a little bit more, we could they they could have made it could have been like as well could have been more family friendly. So making it making it that kind of family, it's a film sort of with a family message and a family story, but then saying yeah, but you've got to put in this sort of hardcore violence in it at least in a couple of points, which then puts it up to an 18 certificate, which works for you know the actually that works in terms of marketing a cigar film. Because if you're saying, oh, it's a it's an 18 it's an 18 rating, that's going to get more interest. Uh, I think Fire Down Below was a 15 when it came out here, which is actually a more violent film, I would say, than The Patriot. It's a very odd situation, but uh, yeah, the over over what what do you get? Uh, would it was it been sorry was it an R? Or yeah. So it, it was an R movie. Now, I think the reason why it would have been – why it was an R – because I, I was trying to figure out – because it felt PG-13 to me just because mm. in America, usually it's sex that, that causes it to get pushed over the top. Something like right. like The Dark Knight, for example, that was a PG-13, um, mm-hmm. and you had people giving other people bloody smiles in, in that movie and all kinds of horrible things like that. Yeah. It was still a PG-13, but I think the reason why it was R is because the virus involves blood. Um, people were spitting blood – um, there's blood coming out of their, their mouths at certain points. And I think you're right about the, 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 the nail in though, usually stabbing, like, you know, stabbing, shooting, all those things generally don't make R ratings if there's not blood involved. I think that's what, what, what may have pushed this one over because yeah, there, there wasn't, you know, a lot there, um, for, for it to be that. So yeah, probably the same thing. It, it, that, that's the big one. Blood is the big one. That, shooting people is not a big deal in, in American cinema, but the blood, for whatever reason, that seems to be the thing that, that, that they don't like, which I always feel like the blood makes it more cartoonish. It makes it more, um, I don't know, it, less believable, right? Less scary. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I certainly, uh, the one I always remember of like, in terms of bloodless action is like in terms of how violent a film can be with um what would have been over here a uh the closest to the pg-13 is what we've got is the 12 certificate mm-hmm. uh, and there was a gi joe rise of cobra where just people is getting stabbed every five seconds it's like a really stabby film but there's no blood so it's 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 like it's almost inconsequential and more than that actually there was a there was a one of the narnia films 
do you remember the uh, they were like Christian produced oh, uh, yes. Chronicles of Narnia and I think like the second one it was just like it was so violent I couldn't believe it and it was a kids movie um, but because it was a I think was like one of the characters who was stabbing everyone because he was like a little cartoon rat it was like oh yeah that's okay and as long as there's no blood <laughs> but uh, anyway go, going off track here so the uh, the Patriot is uh, quite an interesting film, I would say, to watch at this time. What what, what are your feelings sort of about looking uh, at it as a as a film about a potentially global uh, pandemic, which uh, Steven Seagal is able to stop? Yeah, you know, I think actually, and I don't know what it's like like in England um, right now, but I know or. Uh, here in the United States, one of the biggest problems is getting people to take uh, the, the the situation seriously. And I think part of it is movies like The Patriot, where it's like everybody is instantaneously affected, uh, instantaneously showing symptoms. Um, you know, it's like a real quick thing. Like you just yeah. you, you, you breathe it in and you're there and you're sick right away. And people don't understand because um, the coronavirus that has a longer incubation period, yeah. um, people are asymptomatic as well. Um, so so it, I almost feel like people, they're so used to the cinematic understanding of viruses that when a, when a real one happens, like a real, this real pandemic, um, you know, people just don't know how to, how to treat it properly. And, and so, um, I, it's it, that watching it, there was a sense of, I, I was, there was part of me that was kind of connecting it with current events, but there's another part of me that was like, you know, no, this just seems so different from what we're doing now. Yeah, I think as well, if, um, although the, 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 the speed at which they solved the situation uh, is as probably as problematic. I think in actually, I think in Outbreak, it was actually, in my view, more absurd. Yeah, because in Outbreak, he flies around to get the monkey or whatever. Dustin Hoffman actually doesn't solve the problem. It, it, it's Cooper Gooding Jr., who, who, a bit like Seagal's character here, seems to be like a master of everything. So he's like, oh, he's a, he's a, he's a soldier, he's a pilot, he, he can, you know, whip up this antidote, you know, cure, you know, in five seconds at the end of the movie to just sort of cure everyone. And uh, that was just kind of like, wow, it's just so, so crazy. But with this, with the, I thought with, you know, the flowers thing, although it's, yeah, you know, people will take it a bit you know they, they might laugh at it say it's a bit silly or whatever but th i think it works quite nicely i think it's quite a poetic uh solution uh you know you know a conclusion to the movie uh, that it that it ends up being you know they, they're going out and collecting these flowers and if they mix them up or whatever they can uh help keep the you know ultimately uh cure themselves cure it but uh, you know probably a bit bit silly at the a bit silly at the same time uh, we're not in that situation here, obviously, but the idea of was, you know, was this a, a man-made thing that was released is is an interesting thing to, to ponder. Uh, we, no, because nobody nobody really knows exactly what what's what with it. Although it seems that it, you know it wasn't a Nam 37 kind of situation, but that was one of the theories that was floated around for some time, and who knows might have some weight uh, we'll probably never know the truth of, of of where it's all come from but yeah i just kind of i quite like the idea of uh, uh, as a as a object it was a uh, doc, dr wesley mclaren's pathogen posse uh, was was what they used to call uh, 
uh, Wesley McLaren and his and his team when they were immunologists. Uh, I quite like the idea of Steven Seagal, you know, uh, coming out of the woodwork and giving us a, you know, a cure that we would have never imagined to to solve this current crisis that we're in right now. Seagal's actually been oddly silent on the whole coronavirus thing. I thought he would have come out of and, and, and said a few things about it. But uh, yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think too we talked about this movie being only ninety minutes, and and of course yeah. it, it it's it's crazy for me to be talking about a movie being ninety minutes and saying it could have been longer, like because I'm I'm you know I'm always like a stickler on the ninety minute rule mm. for me, um, but. It, I think there there were a lot of messages he really wanted to tell about his his understanding of big business medicine and big pharma and all of that. That I think the the like you said, it was really poetic at the end, the way that the flowers were kind of dropped on everybody, and that was sort of the idea that they were supposed to boil those and that would be the cure. Um, but it, it, you know, you you feel like it, it there was a little bit more of a punch there that he wanted that to have that for whatever reason, whether it was like it got cut out or he didn't want to go all the way with it, or maybe again, you know, late nineties, that just wasn't the, the kind of message that if you made a movie today about that kind of thing, I mean, I, I don't think you could do something with a virus today um, with the current situation, but if you had made a movie about big pharma in that kind of way, um, I think it, you know, it would play a little bit better. I think back then there just wasn't an audience for it like that. Um, people were still kind of more, in tune with those traditional words. Now, I think now people are, are into more alternative methods for, for being healthy. Um, I think there was a bigger message in there that he wanted to give that uh, it, it, when it got to the end there and it, it, it felt like, you know, like you said, it had that poetic ending there. I, I think it, it there was something else in there. There was stuff in there that we missed that, that was cut out that uh, might have kind of driven his point home more. Well, quite possibly. I mean, that's what he did with On Deadly Ground. You know, he, he, he has that quite long speech, at the end, which was which was rumored to be a lot longer. I'm not sure how much of that is, you know, uh, embellished sort of legend. Uh, but the, you know, the, the film itself, you know, say what you like about the film. It was ahead of its time, really, in some of the messaging, you know, uh, the whole inconvenient truth kind of climate change messaging that, you know, became quite popular a number of years later was what people were laughing at about I mean it was the way he was doing it I mean mixing it with the with the uh, action and uh, you know the the solution to stopping the oil well was to you know the solution to stopping the pollution and the oil well and everything was to cause a massive explosion <laughs> which which is which is a ludic you know painfully absurd obviously but the the but the ideas and things articulating and saying how you know we've got to look after the planet and you know uh, find alternative fuels and everything you know that's all quite relevant stuff you know even now and I think in the Patriot he was probably trying to do a very similar thing uh, and we get we get that uh, conversation he has with Floyd Chisholm where he you know sort of sets his agenda a bit about what what how and he says it he has another conversation with his old his old friend from the I don't know, agency or whatever it was, you know, about, you know, the stockpiling of stuff, you know, bioweapon, bi you know, biological warfare and how it's going to wipe us all out. You've got to be careful, you know, you know, all this, you know, sort of stuff. So yeah, I think in terms of its palatability, I think it's probably a much more easily digested message than what he tried to, the way he tried to do it in On Deadly Ground. I think it's actually more successful because it's, not too 
heavy-handed with the with adding on that layer of expected Steven Seagal violence. Uh, so I, I think it works more with with Seagal's character. You know, we Seagal's wearing. You know, we meet him. He's wearing his typical kind of unusual outfits. You know, that, you know, he stands out in the crowd. He's got this great red shirt that he wears throughout the whole movie. Uh, I'd always wanted to get a red shirt ever since seeing that. I, got, I managed to get a couple a couple of years ago. I do like him. And, you know, he's got the coat and, you know, he's wearing the cowboy hat and everything. He's clearly enjoying himself making this film on his on his ranch and getting his messages across and that. I really like that. Um, and the film is really well put together, I think, by Dean Semler. Uh, he, this was the se- after Firestorm, was, this was the second film that he made and the last because he's never directed a film since because he was a, he was and is a cinematographer uh, resp- you know, and he won an Oscar for Dances with Wolves, which you could see as a, as a reference to some of the shots and that that you see in this movie, which was obviously that being a Western, but the, you know, he, he realized that after making those two films, actually being a cinematographer is what he's all about and what he wants to do. He, you know, he, he, he dabbled in directing, but, you know, he wants that wasn't what he wanted to do. Um, for me, that's a shame because I, I love both these movies and I would have loved to have seen him do more. But it's great that he, you know, really, you know, has been able to have such a continued successful career. It's just a shame that this didn't work out with both of those two films going direct to video I, I say through no fault of his I don't think I think he did a, a bang up job and the whole and the whole actual package I mean the music the casting the uh, everything for me works really well with this yeah and you know you know it thinking about it I, I never really considered this before but almost if you're the cinematographer you almost have more control over the film than the director right because the director is there trying to tell everybody what they should be or what, 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 you know, they want from the film, but then they've got, you know, the producer and, and the producers there, the studio telling them, well, no, it needs to be like this. Maybe director or the, the, the actors are pushing back and those kinds of things. Whereas the, the cinematographer, it's like, they just kind of look through the lens and get that shot the way that they want it. And it's almost like if you're the director, you, you kind of have to, you know, if, if it's the shot that you want, you just take, you know, it's like, if the, if the cinematographer gets it right, that the director doesn't do anything with it. They just, they just take it. Uh, I, I wonder if maybe that's what it was. Maybe he felt like he had more control over, you know, getting the shots that he wanted um, as a cinematographer versus being a director and having all the hassle that the director has. I think quite possibly. Yeah. I think that's, that's where, you know, be, being the photographer basically is what he wants to do, not like the orchestrator. I think I, that's so that's the impression I've got anyway. Yeah. But yeah. He's, he's, um, so that, that was good. Um, yeah. I don't know where, where, what's the, what's, um, what else can we say about this movie then? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good question. I mean, what, what, what are some final thoughts? I mean, I think for me, it, it, the fact that it is the first direct to video Seagal film, I think this is where we're seeing that sea change in the late nineties where, all the big names are kind of bowing out of the big screen. You know, that Seagal is, is starting to move towards DTV. Uh, Van Damme is moving towards DTV. Uh, Schwarzenegger is getting a couple more pictures, but really he's going into being a governor and sort of taking time off from making movies. And and at the same time, the, 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 the film industry is moving into these big 
um, comic book productions where they they're you know the big studios are getting the rights to these Marvel pictures and putting more traditional actors you know you know Toby Maguire right where you don't we don't need a Seagal to be or or Van Damme to be Spider-Man we can just put Toby Maguire in that role and, and have yeah. him do it um, you know Alfred Molina is playing a villain um, he did not look like he was in any kind of great shape to be uh, a baddie in a film usually the baddie is some kind of imposing figure but there's Alfred Molina playing Dr. Octopus and and I think it felt like you know, this is sort of the start um, where you're seeing Seagal. And I think he was, he was very successful in DTV, despite the fact that I, I totally agree with you that he's mailed in a lot of those performances. I think he's, um, you know, it, we always I always joke that Keone Waxman is like the Seagal whisperer because he seems yeah. to get the best out of Seagal just by working with him in the confines of what Seagal wants. Um, I think that's definitely especially true in the case of The Keeper, which I think is, yes. is an – of all the films that he's made, I think The Keeper is the one that feels like a 90s cigar movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I think this movie is a really cool one for people to check out just because it does sort of take you back to that. You, you, you can see the wave cresting, I guess, when you watch a movie like this, that what we knew of as action in the 80s into the 90s and this 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 really big thing that that you know, and of course it's come back to that, right? It's 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 sort of moved back into that realm where where you've got like the Fast and the Furious kind of movies. But for these names, um, they 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 were kind of the you know, the wave was cresting for them. And I think this is an interesting film in that sense to be able to watch it. I, I was trying to bring myself back to that moment to kind of <laughs> remember what it was like before the, these these names. Um, cause I, I don't remember what Van Damme's last. Uh, one would have been, but he would have been going direct to video right around the same time, I think. Yeah, the uh, he was doing stuff like uh, Double Team and Knock Off right. around this, and uh, Universal Soldier The Return, I think, was kind of the sort of tail end of his uh, theatrical run. Yeah, and and you think of other names like like a Gary Daniels, who was kind of just trying to make his way in direct to video, and now suddenly the pictures that he might have gotten. Uh, they're now going to people like Van Damme and Seagal with a bigger name that could go on the tin um, and get more views. I think that's around the time. This is around the time that Dolph Lundgren starts directing more of his films. He's he's kind of having a more active hand because I think he also maybe saw the writing on the wall that some of these big names are starting to creep down and um and, and you know I they, you know you got to kind of do something else if you're going to to survive in that ecosystem. Yeah, well, it's, and also in the in. In the 90s, uh, sorry, when we got into the 2000s, uh, so got Seagal and Van Damme have properly moved into that realm. But then you've got Val Kilmer yeah. and Cooper Gooding Jr. taking a lot of the kind of action roles, you know, action thriller roles as, as well. So you've got all these kind of not just the action stars, but like the properly respected, uh, you know, award winning actors coming coming in as well. So, you know, Seagal was uh, probably feeling, uh, well, you know, he, he didn't really want to. He was doing, he was going through, the, he has been going through the motions in the, in the most case for a lot of the time, you know, just using his marquee value, uh, you know, having very, very strict uh, rules on what he's willing to do, you know, for the money that they're going to pay him. You know, he's, he's not really trying, he's not trying to, deliver more than he has to for to satisfy the fans which which is the, the ultimate shame but the uh there have been a few you know 
brighter moments, you know, the, the, I, I think, you know, say attrition being a particular one, but I, you know, belly of the beast and into the sun are both very, you know, high, top higher end, you know, cigar movies that have their very distinct qualities. Even the, some of the rubbish ones, uh, you know, sort of the, the ones that use recycled footage and huge amounts of uh, doubling and, and dubbing in, in, in a lot of cases, uh, I, I've found that I've enjoyed quite a lot, you know, in spite of, or in not, not necessarily in spite of, but maybe because of some of their unique attributes, Submerged and Today You Die are particular favourites. But uh, and the keeper because I, I think the keeper really does feel like it was a movie out of its time almost you know there's there's for me there's not really a lot that's wrong with that uh, and, and it sort of stands out as a, a film that really works with Seagal and you know what what his personality's like whereas he, when you put him in stuff like Attack Force which was just a complete mess right. and uh, some of the you know like I don't know some of the other stuff where he was like. Um, uh, uh, against the dark, where is the vampire hunter? You know stuff like that. You know it just doesn't really work. It's it's him in David Carradine mode for the most part with with a lot of that stuff. But yeah, I, I mean I love Seagal. I, I I probably always will. Uh, and you know even you know this you know this is one of my top five. I would say probably you know it's in part due to I think it's easy. It's quite an easy watch. You know, it's not too demanding and it's very short, you know, so I, I probably come back to this a lot more than most others. And um, if it wasn't for the, um, those hardcore violent moments, uh, I'd, I'd definitely be showing it to my son. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, right? That's a good point. Yeah, cause it's a, I mean, I mean, it's the, the beautiful scenery, I think, was one thing that um, that really struck me about this, too, that it's just it's it's that constant backdrop. And I, I've never been to Montana before. I've been to Colorado, which has mm-hmm. a lot of really big mountains. Um, and, and it does it does. There is a part of it that, that feels really nice there. And I think that that's one element that I really enjoyed about this. And I, I agree with you there. I think the fact that Seagal is invested does mean a lot. I think, you know, when. When I think of my top five, my my four of my top five are like his first four movies that he made that just you know just kind of this high octane action thing where he just was going for it and it's almost like after those movies he starts to kind of get a this this I don't want to say a big head maybe I don't know if that's the right term but he kind of really starts to think of himself as a you know there's that story that I believe I think I don't know if I should, I don't want to attribute to the wrong person but I think it was Keenan Ivory Wayans um, said that that he. Um, Seagal approached him on set and said, I just read the greatest script ever. And Keaton everyone's like, oh, who, who wrote it? And he's like, I did. You know, like that's sort of the, the, the story that goes around. And there's a lot of those interesting ones with Seagal, which you don't know if he's just, you know, sort of, again, maybe he just rubbed enough people the wrong way that they sort of embellish situations like that. Um, but it, it feels like when, when you get these ones like this one here, um, The Patriot, which, again, he was invested in wanting to make sure this did well because he had just broken away from Warner Brothers and he wanted this to be successful, um, yeah. or Attrition, it, it – it, it feels better, right? It just it works better than watching these ones where, like you, some of the ones you mentioned there, you know, you know, where he's kind of mailing it in. He's not doing his reverse shots. Um, you know, he's he's his his, his fight scenes. You, you can kind of see that it's not him in some of them. That that somebody else with yeah. him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you you 
it, it does take watching one of these to remind myself of what it was that I liked about Seagal when, when I, you know, and, and why I go back and watch all of his new stuff, you know, and, and, and tend to get burned, you know, here and there um, by, by some of the worst ones. But, it, you know, when you see something like this where he's invested, I think you're right. It's, it's kind of a reminder that, that there was a Seagal. There, there's a reason why we, we all liked him and why he's on the cover and why he's doing these movies, um, because there was a Seagal in the past that we all really liked. Yeah, and the, when you look, I mean, even some of the films that are properly called back to, uh, alpha, you know, the Alpha Justice, hard, hard to kill kind of stuff. Like, um, so you got uh, Urban Justice, which was released here in the UK as Renegade Justice, which, funnily enough, I think it features a shot from The Patriot where they uh, photoshopped a boy into the position of his of, of the girl, the, of the actress, um, Camilla Bell. In that, as, as for like flashback kind of thing, the that film is what a lot a lot of people consider that one of the best that he's made because it's like it's quite full on, you know, it's quite small scale, but it's you know the action is quite full on on that, and he he seems really committed to it. But I did a phone interview with him uh, when he was making that, and it, and it really didn't seem like he was enthusiastic for it at all. Which was really quite surprising, really, because the way it came out and the way it was received, you would have thought it was a project that he actually had more interest in. But it seems that it, for, it seems that that really wasn't the case, which which was always quite. But you know, he was very much more interested in his music at that time when he was releasing uh, the songs from the Crystal Cave and Mojo Priest and stuff like that. That was where he was finding his sort of creative outlet. But. Um, yeah, um, I just wanted to mention a couple of little trivia bits about yeah, the Patriot. Absolutely. Uh, when we see Dr. Wesley McLaren in his doctor's office, uh, one of his assistants comes in, uh, and that is he, that is Seagal's daughter, Ayako Fujitani. And there's a, there's a quite an interesting short film that Michelle Gondry made with her because he made a film in which she was an actress, but they made this like little short film called How to, Bl I think it was called How to Blow Up a Helicopter, um, where she is, they don't mention Seagal at first, but she is mentioning sort of her father and sort of the difficult relationship that they kind of have. And she's quite insecure in that. And then she goes to meet um, Seagal, her dad, and they have this guy. So that's that's quite a, an interesting little film. It's about 15 minutes. You can find that on YouTube. The other thing was I didn't realize was that because of the militia being painted as the, the villains in the film, the film actually had some pre-production difficulties with uh, threats uh, by people claiming to be militia, uh, upset at the, at the potentially, and you know, obviously it was ultimately negative portrayal of, uh, of a militia uh, in the movie. So the, the, the film did actually seem like it will, uh, at one point it could have gone on the, you know, it could have got halted, basically. Uh, I think the FBI got involved or something to sort of investigate it and, they, you know, it ultimately came to nothing. But the uh, that is quite interesting and, and probably not really that surprising, I would say, that, you know, a militia would, would hear about it and, you know, take exception to it. Yeah, yeah, because that period of time, um, the late 90s, it, because, it, you know, Militia groups tend to get more emboldened and they become more prolific when we have Democrat uh, pre uh, Democratic presidents in office. Mm -hmm. 
So at that time, Clinton was still in office at that time. And there was this sense that he might have, you know, because, again, the, the impeachment thing was, was starting. And, and I think there was a, a feeling amongst some of the these militia groups that, that he might be uh, impeached, which was a total long shot. It was never really going to happen. Um, but then, of course, yeah, I think both Ruby Ridge and Waco both held, uh, happened under yeah. Clinton's watch. Um, and so then, of course, you know, the same thing happened when Obama was in office. These groups became, you know, prolific again. And I think it was one of the things that pollsters in this country, when they were predicting the 2016 election, they didn't really factor in that a lot of these groups, they generally in the past, they didn't vote. And and Trump was able to get them out and vote a lot more in the recent election. And then a lot of the, the, the liberal voters didn't really care so much about Hillary or they kind of looked at it as, well, there's no way she's going to lose. So, if you know, I'm not going to stand in line to vote. Um, and I think that that was how Trump got in. But um, what's happened, of course, is they've become more emboldened under him as president. And usually what happens is, is like you get someone like George W. Bush, when he got into office, those groups feel like they're getting what they want. So they don't have anything to rail against so much. I think that that's kind of how, how these groups work. They tend to become more fringe elements. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I could see in 1998, especially, um, you know, again, um, you know, the, these groups were kind of in the news a little bit. I, I think from, from an American standpoint, them as boogeymen were becoming a little bit people were kind of tired of it they, they they just they especially after the oklahoma city bombing i think it was just such a that was such a big event um where uh the this guy timothy mcveigh in response to the ruby ridge standoff and then the waco uh, uh standoff in response to those two things he blew up uh, or he, he he set off a bomb near the oklahoma city federal building killed yeah. like 160 people that was like you know before 9 11 that was the biggest um terrorist attack. And I think that's probably another part of it, too, is that when 9-11 happened, a lot of these groups were kind of in the, you know, all of us against them mindset that was pervasive in the country. Uh, the whole country moved conservative after the 9-11 attacks. Um, so just kind of the whole, you know, the whole vibe. I mean, you, you had a lot of uh, liberal senators and Congress people who were voting more conservatively on issues. So I think that's probably part of it, too, is that in the 2000s, they didn't really feel like they had a, a you know, um, as many issues, but yeah, late nineties with Clinton in office and Clinton was one of the more conservative democratic presidents we've ever had too. I think it's his two claims to fame were um, one, he, he made it harder for, for uh, people that uh, uh, needed assistance from the government to get uh, financial assistance. And then he also passed a law that led to what is now, you know, what was the, the financial crisis of 2008. He, um, he signed into law a bill called Graham Leach Bliley, which essentially Remove the restrictions between banks and uh, investment banks and lending banks, um, which created this whole too big to fail over a 10 year period. Um, so it's kind of funny that these militia groups looked at Clinton as this horrible liberal who was going to ruin the country and make it this horrible, like liberal bastion when he actually was probably more conservative. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was actually, you know, enacting laws that they would have been wanting him to enact that, that you know, that, whereas us liberals that were there at the time, you know, we thought Clinton was so great, but he's actually doing a lot, you know. Um, I think Al Gore would have been, if Al Gore had been elected, he would have been the president that they would have hated. He would have been the one doing the stuff that they, they would have been able to stand. But yeah, I mean, at that time they were, they were kind of a, you know, um, it, it still has been kind of a, a, a difficult thing where I think the federal government has always pushed against the, the militia groups, but usually like the local law enforcement isn't as big because a lot of times they're, they're in bed with them to some extent. Um, and, um, you know, cause they're all usually some kind of homegrown local, uh, development. So 
Yeah, I could see like if there was if they were filming in a remote part of Montana, um, it it may have been an, an issue where if there were groups in those areas that were running things to some extent, um, yeah, he he might not have been able to get the protection he would have wanted um, if he was filming there. Yeah, and I wonder if that might have been in well. I thought about it being possibly one of the reasons why he moved out because after they made the movie, uh, Seagal had been on this ranch, uh, some uh, ranch, since 1994. So he'd been there about four years, and then he sold up. Uh, uh, but from what uh, when I was looking into it, it looked like it was more to do with um, environmental, ironically, an environmental reason. It was like he, he based almost like he wasn't taking care of the the land because it was like uh was it eighteen thousand five hundred acres uh and there was a problem there was like a there was something growing there that you know needed some attention and he didn't really want to bother with it so he sold the problem basically uh <laughs> sort of sold out for 55 million dollars to uh to move on to greener pastures as it were so i thought that, that's kind of interesting that you know he kind of set up home there or at least one of his homes and made this movie which ended up not being very successful and then he kind of severed ties with with the place so it's quite interesting i say because the film gives you that little glimpse into seagal's life by showing you actually somewhere where he lived uh, and you know you know was clearly interested in the land and the, and the area and stuff i was saying that gives it a really interesting dimension uh, for if you know if you're a fan going back to what you were saying about the um I think he was saying something about the, the villain. The um, Floyd Chisholm, the actor who plays Floyd Chisholm, uh, uh, Galen Sarton, I, I think his name is. When I, I think possibly when I first saw him, I recognised him immediately as a guy who was in the Ernest P. Worrell movies, <laughs> so, which was as kind of like comic, comical character. So that was quite an interesting change for me to see him in a sort of a dramatic baddie role. Uh, but I thought I, th- I thought I thought he did really well in it and uh you know that's uh, quite quite uh yeah quite like that uh his performance but there's a uh yeah i'm not gonna waffle on anymore <laughs> no 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 that's good well you know because i think one of the things um that you know you know, when you think of, of bad guys in a movie um i think you know a, a right-wing militia group that that's almost like a baddie in a can kind of thing you know just like mm-hmm. we think of like a like white slavers baddie in a can you know a poachers that are killing defenseless, you know, endangered species out in the wild. That's usually the same idea. And so, yeah, something like this, it wouldn't take a lot to, to make them into baddies. You know, you just kind of, you'd know. And, but I thought it was interesting how that, yeah, he, I think he did a great job in playing that part of, of, you know, sort of playing into our expectations of what that baddie would be. Um, so we didn't really need a lot of development for him. Like we could, you know, know that he was the villain right away. Yeah. So do you think, do you, do you like this as a good movie or do you think it's a bad, you know, it's, it's not a very good movie, but there's things that you really like about it. I mean, I do, I, you know, I think it's hard to say like if I would have wanted more action or, or, um, you know, because it did feel like it took a, a little bit of time. It took like about a half hour. It felt like before we got to the first plot point with the, with the, um, the virus, but there, there are things that I really do enjoy about it for what it is. I think if I had seen this back in the nineties, I may not have been as, um, good on it but looking back for what it is is something that again you know seeing the tide changing and what these 
these actors were getting for roles and how they were all kind of moving to that direct-to-video part of it. Um, I do, you know, the messages I wish, you know, maybe had been fleshed out a little bit more, but I liked that he was kind of going there with the messages about, you know, alternative medicine. And, of course, the backdrop is just so nice. Mm. Uh, it's just such a beautiful landscape. And, you know, as we were talking about, anytime you get Seagal invested, I, I feel like if he's invested, I have to give it some credit. I have to, you know, like it for some extent just because of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And as I say, uh, as I've already said, uh, I, I think this is a genuinely good movie. I really like it and I recommend that people check it out. Uh, I think most places you'll be able to find it on like Amazon Prime these days. I think it's, it's probably in a few places, but I know, I, I know it's on there. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you have a streaming service called Tubi in, in Unfortunately, the UK. we don't have access to it, no. Because I hear hearing everyone saying, oh, check this film out on Tubi. And I was like, well, restricted. Yeah. <laughs> Can't because say I, that, unfortunately. Yeah, that's what it's on here. So Tubi is like, it's like Amazon Prime, only you don't have to pay a subscription for it. Instead, it has advertisements, which compared to what it's like when you watch a movie on, on the television, and I don't know how, how advertising works in the UK versus, you know, in the United States, it's like every, you know, I don't know, however, however many, you know, eight minutes or so, there's usually an advertisement of some sort. Um, now, now, the way that they tend to do movies on TV is that they'll front load or they'll, they'll sort of backload the ads. So the beginning yeah. of the film might have not, not have any, and then they'll all be at the end. Um, but with Tubi, they're really not that bad. They're not that intrusive. It's just every once in a while you get an ad pop up. Um, so it's, it's a nice way to see films. That um, and they have a pretty good sized catalog, but I have noticed they do have almost everything that Amazon Prime has. Um, so if you if you've got Prime, you, you're probably not missing much with not having Tubi. If you've got Prime, it's just that if you're 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 in the UK and you don't want to pay for a Prime subscription, then yeah, then you, unfortunately you're out of luck because that's yeah. But Tubi has that that library as well. I think they've probably got they've probably got the same stuff because it's the same companies selling it. To them, you know, there's like the companies like Film Rides or whatever right. who just have the rights to loads of movies and they just sell them to various services. So that's probably why. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just having a look at the Tubi site again and it's saying Tubi is the largest free movie and TV streaming service in the US. We are not available in Europe due to changes in EU laws. So it's all to do with the general data protection regulation is the reason why we can't watch it apparently. Oh, okay, yeah, and and the funny thing is that there are actually a lot of um, shows from the UK that they they have, especially a lot of uh, detective shows um, that that are on that Tubi service. So a lot of shows that we we probably would never have gotten in the United States, um, they 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 have on there. And um, but yeah, they, they, I think Shout Factory has has a contract with them to show some of their content. So there are some some older things on there, but I, I think you know if you've got Prime in the UK, you're probably going to get most of Tubi's library. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, I was I always say that just because I, I, you know, for me, it's it, what, what, the reason why I tend to do Tubi more than Prime um, is that um, my wife gets upset because uh, if I watch my bad movies, it, it screws up the algorithm. Oh, yeah. It's better for me to just watch it on Tubi than to have to go back into Prime and, and remove it from from the algorithm. Um, so that's usually why the, that, that, that I just do, uh, just do Tubi that way. But yeah, that's yeah, it's a shame you can't set up different accounts like on, you know, on Netflix. You can have a different you've got your main profile, but then you can have uh, separate profiles. So you can just make sure you've clicked on, you know, you logged in on the right one and then you're only going to get the um, the algorithms are going to serve you stuff related to that particular content. So, you know, that's uh, 
yeah, I understand where you're coming from there. <laughs> yeah, well, and what happened was we, we put the Amazon Prime account in, in her name and with her account. So, um, yeah, so so I, I can log into her account. I've got her, her password and everything, but it's just, yeah. Um, it, it, we, I think she wanted, she was talking about that too. Like, I wish they would do that. You know, like, let me, you know, because that's what we, we, we each have our own Netflix account. So we are, we're able to do that, but... Um, but yeah, so so it's one another another reason why I use Tubi. Um, but I, it's funny, I will sometimes. I don't know if my searches, because um, you know how if you go on IMDb, you can see how much of an actor or director's films are on Prime uh, through IMDb. So that that's something I will do sometimes. So I'll search, um, and so I don't know how much that affects the algorithm, but it does. Uh, I do have to go in there and scrub it from time to time so that she doesn't just show up and just see all PM Entertainment flicks for her suggested viewing. Uh, as just an aside, because of that IMDb Prime uh, thing, is IMDb owned by Amazon, or is they just got they've just got like a contract or whatever? Do you know? Do you know I what that don't situation know for is? Sure. No, I, I did read an article one time that showed every company that Amazon owned, um, and I was shocked at what ones they did own. But I don't remember if that was one of them. Um, it, 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 it's interesting because it, yeah, it, it, it feels like there's a, a connection between them from that. But I don't know if they actually own them or not. Yeah, that's a good question. Oh yeah, no, there it is at the very bottom, an Amazon company. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So they did. I've probably seen it a million times, and you know, you just see the same thing, and you just become blind to it. <laughs> right. No, no, it's at the very bottom. I mean, very seldom do I ever get to the very bottom of an IMDb page. I mean, it's like down below where it shows like the pic, the pictures and of. of movies and actors that I've looked up recently. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't usually get that far down, but yeah, there it is. It says it there. Yeah. Now at this point, uh, Richard, you know, before we wrap up, any, any final thoughts on, on the Patriot? No, I think, uh, I think I've covered off everything off that I wanted to, you know, from, from my notes. Uh, no, I just, I just uh, want to say, uh, thank you for, revisiting this movie with me or for, for allowing me to share my enthusiasm for it with you yeah yeah i know because we were, we were talking about a cigar flick and actually the funny thing was the one that we suggested beyond the law was one that you said um it's harder to get in the uk we we get that in the united states through a, um, a streaming service called hoopla mm -hmm. um which it hooks up to your your local uh, municipal library account so essentially you're you're taking the movie out for for a day or two um, to watch it and you get oh, okay. that. yeah you get four movies so that was that was how that one was available to me but um you know it was nice to know that this one is there uh, i think this is a seagull flick that yeah it, it, i think you know out of the ones we were, we were talking about possibly discussing i think this one was the best one for a good you know podcast conversation and i'd been meaning to get seagull on the site for a while so when i was i was thinking about having you on i thought seagull might be a really great you know it might be a really great opportunity to uh to write that wrong and uh, I'm very glad you you uh, you asked me to. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, now at this point, Richard, um, could you tell people where they can find you on social media? Yes, uh, you can find uh, find us at the DTV Digest. You can find us at, on Twitter and Facebook uh, just by searching the DTV Digest. So slash the DTV Digest on both of those. Uh, our, our podcast is at Podbean. So it's, I think it's like podbean.dtvdigest, but if you if you just typed in Podbean DTV Digest, it will it will come up, and and there's links from the from the social account as well. To find me personally, uh, I'm on Twitter as rshdtv, so slash rshdtv. 
All right. Excellent. Yeah, I think the podcast, I know I, I subscribe on iTunes to it, I think, or I'm, I, um, I, I have to start subscribing to podcasts again. I had an, an old iPhone for a long time, an i4, and I couldn't subscribe because the, the, the interface. Now that I've got, I've got, a, I've upgraded my phone recently, so I can go back to subscribing to some more. But definitely, I think it's 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 good to check out because I think for people, um, just kind of getting a sense of what's out there. Um, I think with this, this this sort of this DTV world that we're all all in, um, that this menu, milieu, I think it's always great to find out about more content and kind of, you know, hear more stuff. And I, I always enjoy listening to your podcast and, and talking about those those new movies that are coming up, but also some of those great ones in the past. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much. I also think it's really interesting, just as, a, as an aside, that we're basically in a DTV only world at the moment. So <laughs> that's been quite strange because all the major sort of, uh, all the other sort of major film programs and outlets or whatever that would usually cover the big cinema releases, everything is now DTV. So we're kind of in that weird, <laughs> we're, we're still trying to, you know, be covering this kind of same kind of stuff, but we're also in a world where, you know, Trolls World Tour or, or Artemis Fowl and, you know, all that kind of stuff is DTV as well, whereas originally it would have been, uh, at least in some cases, you know, big theatrical releases. So it's kind of like stuff is, whereas the definition of DTV has kind of changed because it we used to be... Uh, Let's say, let's take a film like Kurt Russell's Soldier, you know, big theatrical production, tanks at the box office, gets sent DTV in the UK. Uh, in and now we're in a case of, well, you know, it's a big movie. It hasn't really proven itself whether it's, you know, good or bad or, you know, profitable or not. But there's nowhere we can show the damn thing. So, uh, so it's either you hold it. Uh, and you know eventually release it uh, you know where there's a window you know you you know hold the big releases as you know the, the major ones like fast nine and, and you know the, no time to die but all the other sort of ones they're kind of a bit more open to you know well maybe we just make this director video release you know premium and add that premium we've, we've got this kind of premium uh, video on demand thing that's come in it's you you if, well certainly in the uk uh, premium VOD has been around for quite a long time, and uh, but not in the case of any big movies. They are basically DTV movies that were in, chucked into like 25 cinemas to make it, you know, a theatrical release basically. But uh, for the most part, the, all the viewing is done through specialist streaming services or, or Google Play or whatever it is uh, for 6.99 or nine, six pounds ninety nine, I should say, or nine ninety nine. Um, and now we've got this premium thing like where you pay 15 pounds 99 which i guess in dollars would be like 30 35 dollars or something like that i'm not sure i don't know no, the uh, the change but you know really you know big money you know for for, for paying for some of these movies i mean i i, I won't you know <laughs> i don't want to pay that kind kind of cash but uh, it's it, i just think it's quite a curious it's a very curious time that we're in right now <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's interesting because you, you mentioned like Fast Nine, where they said, you know what, we're not gonna, we, you know, because it's such a big money maker. That's one that's usually in the the nine figures um, when it, when it comes out. Um, sometimes even stretching it to ten, they they're just like, well, no, we we, we need to push it back. Whereas um, there was that Bloodshot movie with with Vin Diesel as well, um, yep. where it, that's an interesting one because you think of Valiant Comic Book Company, they were they were kind of banking on that to be a big deal for them to sort of make their inroad with some of the other. Uh, you know, Marvel and DC, and 
they ended up just pushing it and, and, and putting it on the video on demand. And it is one of those things where, you know, if you go to a Wikipedia page or something like that, and you look at the big box office numbers. I mean, this year is going to be a very interesting one for the yeah. 2020 year in film because usually, you know, I, I always kind of enjoy that part to look at what, what were the big winners of, you know, the, the, the big sellers for that year and then maybe comparing it to 20, 30 years ago and seeing like the diversity in film at that time and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it's if you're the, 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 the standard DTV film, the film that we, we kind of traditionally know as DTV, you're now up against these other ones. And, you know, I, it's, it's hard, like you said, that the price is still there where it's like I, I wonder myself, like how many my wife and I have never spent that kind of money either on on any of these these rentals. And, you know, I, I wonder if enough of us were so used to Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, where we're paying our subscription fee and we just get whatever they have on there that we don't think about it like that. Um, that, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend $20 or $30 or, you know, yeah. Cause I, I think, I think they usually charge about 20, uh, 1999 in the United States for them. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, but it's still about the, you know, it's still a, 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 a huge price compared to, you know, either not paying anything right. Or not paying anything extra you know, mm-hmm. what you're already paying or, you know um, you know, a lot of times my wife and I, if we see a movie that we, we haven't seen in a while that is only available to rent, it's like three ninety nine to, to rent at $3 and 99 cents. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a huge price, and I I, it, I would be interested to see some some of the figures to see like how a Bloodshot did um, by deciding to go out like that and going uh, VOD. Um, but yeah, if they, I think the, the feeling is if they're if if it's not going to make you know nine figures, I think the, the the studios are pushing some of those ones out into VOD to just get some kind of money from them. Yeah, quite quite a, quite a lot of them I think is uh, have got have gone that way in. Yeah, it's, it'll be, it's going to be interesting to. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, date the show too much, but the you know Tenet is supposed to be coming out in cinemas in in the, as we record. They've I think they've just pushed the date back, but only slightly. They're still really keen to get it out in July, I think, which I still think is quite ambitious. Uh, I, I, I think we I think we're still quite a long way off of. Uh, I think DTV is going to rule for quite a long time. Uh, yeah this year I think so it's it's quite interesting because I was uh I pulled together quite a lot of stats on because uh, we fo- we focus mainly on the uh physical releases when we're doing our stats and our updates on the on the social media about what's coming out because if I try to do all the online stuff you know yeah. online release digital releases it's just too there's just too many it's, it's just impossible to keep track of but um we look at okay what's out on dvd and during the lockdown you know, there has been a drop in the number of releases, which we'd normally get about eight DVDs on average a week. Um, but we've, you know, there was a drop to, you know, three or four or whatever, but it's, they've been sort of ticking over because they do, uh, they can still sell in the supermarkets, which is the main place that people buy uh, DVDs, Blu-rays uh, over here now, because most of the, you know, big uh, retailers uh, aren't, aren't there anymore. So unless they're buying on Amazon, uh, that it's it's if they're if they're physically picking a copy up themselves, it's usually in a supermarket, and that's kind of the the big thing here. And so we haven't actually noticed a massive downturn, really, in the, in the amount of releases. It's been it's been surprisingly consistent, uh, although there has been a drop. And I will be looking at my um, the figures that I gathered last year to see you know year on year what was the 
what was the drop there? Uh, I haven't been keeping a close eye on it, but it's you know it's it's you, it's not as bad as you would expect, especially as DVD physical media is essentially dying out. There still seems to be enough uh, interest, you know, enough of a market to you know to keep pushing them out. You know, very few people have actually held back their releases. Quite you know, a, a few of like. Um, either deleted a release, you know, and just decided to do it online, or or held it back and they released it digitally and then said, okay, we're going to put like a payback. They the Scott uh, Deck Collectors, uh, oh, right. the Deck Collector sequel. So that's come out digitally, but it will be coming out on uh, on DVD uh, a few weeks later, which is quite a common thing. The the sort of digital window, but the the lockdown doesn't seem to be you know changing that at all. Actually, we're in the middle of a uh, uh, as we record this, we're actually opening up now. You know, stores are uh, non-essential retail is opening up, and that so there will be more outlets available for discs. And anyway, so what? What? Um, if you don't mind uh, me going on that track, so what's the situation over there with you know where people can pick up discs? Is 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 everything is where you are in Philadelphia? Is everything still closed, or is it open, or did it not close at all, or what, well, so what's the situation? What's interesting is when you talked about where people buy DVDs, the places that people buy DVDs here, same idea. They're all considered essential. Um, they're not quite traditional grocery. I mean, we have traditional grocery stores, and they do have DVDs, but they tend not to have as many of the new releases. It tends to be more like a, a bargain bin that people sift through for long periods of time. Um, but you know, the bigger chains that you think of, like like a, a Walmart or a Target, they have been considered essential as well. So people are going there. Um, mm. I don't know what the, the actual physical medium, you know, it, it, it does seem like those places, um, Walmart seems to have a bigger selection of DVDs. I think they're, they're the people that go shop there tend to, to do more DVDs, whereas I think um, uh, Target has, has a smaller DVD section. Uh, for people that go there, but um, it's, it's hard to say too, because now I think about it, like the target that's near me is a very smaller version. Uh, right. But but yeah, you bring up a good point that it used to be, right, you'd have these specialty stores like uh, that that would, you know, uh, have, have DVDs, have movies and things like that, that nowadays those places have been kind of They've gone under because they they're too specialized, and uh, the the places where people buy them at are, are considered essential. So, you know, I I know DVD here in the United States overall has, has shrunk a lot, and I think the people that are buying DVDs they tend to be buying Blu-ray versions, uh, and and are buying them more as collectors. Yeah, and I I think that's a, a big thing. I mean, when I hear people talking about movies here in the in the United States, they're really talking about either. You know, streaming on 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 Netflix or something like that, or they're talking about getting a new Blu-ray version of it, and they're they're showing their Blu-ray copy that they got, or they're ordering used older DVDs. You know, trying to fill up a collection. You know, trying to get my you know someone trying to get their their Seagal collection or something yeah. like that, and they're they're going for those. And and in those cases, I think people will buy a new version of. So like, you know, a new Seagal movie comes out, they're going to buy it to add it to their collection, um, as opposed to. You know, it's, 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 they're going to get a lot of the, the sales through that. But but yeah, in answer to your question, it, 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 the, the places where people buy DVDs are considered essential. They, they are starting to relax restrictions a little bit here in, in Philadelphia as well. I don't know how well that's going to go over because the, the city here is it's 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 pretty densely populated, and so mm -hmm. I, I just don't know that 
opening things up too much is going to have a good a positive result that uh, mm. people are going to be you know interacting. But yeah, places like like the um those those sort of the, the stores that have to because they have groceries in them in addition to, to department stuff, um, they have been able to stay open, so they've been considered essential, and that's where people are buying their DVDs if they're buying them. Yeah, so largely the same as here, really. It, it it's interesting and it, it 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 changes the calculus right when we think about DTV um, that uh, you know I, I ran into it when I was talking about Netflix originals like do I do I do I ended up doing the Irishman just to kind of do it um, and and Dolomite is my name but they they aren't really DTV movies and what we traditionally think of as a DTV movie and now you're talking about movies that were supposed to get a theatrical release that um, are now being pushed to DTV just based on the situation, it does change the calculus a bit on what, what we consider DTV and what we should be, what we feel like we should be covering. Cause I think, yeah. you know, the point of why we do this, right. We are trying to give uh, a voice to films that not everybody knows. And, yeah. and so it, it, it is hard to figure out, well, what is a movie that not everybody knows about? Yeah. I think that, and that's really interesting. There's a lot of sort of crossover in, you know, trying to decide where a film sort of fits. I mean, I, to a large extent, looked at things like uh, the Cloverfield Paradox as like the modern equivalent of what used to be being sent direct to DVD. It's, you know, a film they didn't think it was going to work theatrically, so they sold it off, uh, you know, and it, get, and it gets, just goes out on Netflix. But then you've got the films that are being made for Netflix, like your Michael Bay stuff. So that's different in, in itself because, you know, they're, they're, that's more like the cable TV arrangement, like the HBO made for cable movies thing that was happening uh, started um, sort of more was more majorly in the 90s i think wasn't it yeah was uh, so they're almost like made for tv movies really so so they're kind of in that weird middle ground it's like between like you know it's the, the same with sort of series you know you've got tv series and then you've got web series so is a, is it is a series that's on Netflix a web series or would you call it a TV series? We get to, sort of tied in knots with something like The Irishman. The way I the way I uh, work it out is whether I consider it to be a DTV film or not. Is has it had a because uh, some DTV stuff does, as I say, get cinema released uh, within like a three day window. So it might, a film might come out. Uh, we have film re- cinema releases here on a Friday. Uh, traditionally, generally. Uh, so if a film comes out on a Friday, but then the digital uh, the digital or disc release, or both, uh, comes on the Monday, which again is the sort of traditional release day here. So if there's if they come out that period, I call it D, I consider it DTV, even though it's been in cinemas. It's not been in many cinemas. It's just sort of a platform to sort of raise the profile of the movie, like an Escape Plan three or or something with Sylvester Stallone, which is basically a DTV movie, but they they do a poster campaign and everything for it a bit. Um, with The Irishman, that came out in cinemas, not very many cinemas, but it was in cinemas a few weeks before Netflix. So because it had that window of being in cinemas for a few weeks before, I, I don't consider that, uh, even though it was probably made for, and I don't know exactly what the specific relationship with Netflix was, but because it was a cinema release uh, for a for a, a what I'd consider not an insubstantial period before becoming available on Netflix, uh, I I didn't classify that one as DTV by my methodology. You know, so I, it's just my it's just the way I work things out. 
Well, that's the thing for me is I think I have to maybe change my, because mine was always 10 million. If, if the movie made more than 10 million in the theaters, I didn't consider it DTV. Um, but, you know, what Netflix is doing with, with The Irishman is I, I'm, maybe three weeks might be, that might be the number that it uh, it's required in England for or for in the UK for it to be uh, eligible for the award circuit. Because that was the idea in the United States was that they 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 made it available theatrically just long enough so that it could qualify for Oscar nominations. That mm-hmm. was the, the main point of it putting it there. But they really wanted it to be just right on Netflix. They, I believe they did the same thing with Dolomite is my name. Um, they they had it theatrically just long enough so they could qualify for the award season. And then I mean, I'm sure if it, if it had made money in the theater, they would have you know gone for it. I don't I don't think it was I think a movie that's it's, it's pushing over three hours. It's hard for people to sit in the theaters nowadays for that kind of a movie. But um, but yeah, I, I'm realizing I probably have to change my calculus because of what Netflix is doing uh, with, with with movies, the way that they're playing with the system differently compared to what we're used to. Um, you know, right when we were, you know, when we were starting uh, the, the site in, in, you know, when we're kind of thinking about DTV in the, the 2000s, it wasn't a badge of honor to be DTV. It wasn't considered a good thing. Um, and now it's, uh, you know, Netflix looks at it as like, oh, we're saving Martin Scorsese. We're, you know, we're giving Spike Lee a chance yeah. to make movies again because, you know, Martin Scorsese, you know, whether you agree or not with what he said about Marvel movies, you know, it, it, it is the reality that, that, you know, the theaters don't want, uh, the, the, the major motion picture houses don't want to greenlight a, a Martin Scorsese film because they don't think it's going to make them, you know, 10 figures. Like, you know, you, you, they want to pull a billion gross worldwide. Um, and, and Scorsese can't do that anymore. So that's where Netflix swoops in. That's sort of like a, you know, uh, they can serve as a badge of honor. Amazon tried to do the same thing with Woody Allen. It didn't work out for them. No. <laughs> uh, you know, so that was a kind of a, a misstep on their part, but they tried to do the same thing. But um, you can see Netflix has done it not you know not just with Martin Scorsese, but also a platform for Spike Lee. And then also Quentin Tarantino, they they created they, they put out an extended version of The Hateful Eight uh, on there. Um, it's like five episode movie uh, version of it. So I they... I did not know that. Yeah, I've never seen it, so it's like it's like a it's considered like a mini series on there, but it's essentially an, an extended version of the Hateful Eight that's like about five hours long. And it's released as like episodes. Yeah, so it's released as like four or five episodes, I believe. Um, like I, I haven't seen it yet. I've been meaning to. It, it's hard to just kind of put down that time. I've been uh, I've been binging uh, that that TV show Arrow that was here in the United States. Um, just kind of episodes here and there when I'm not watching movies for the site and whatnot. Um, but I've thought about going in to watch it to, to see exactly what it's, what it's like. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, that's what Netflix I think is doing that they're kind of working with, with, you know, name directors who are used to kind of getting their way in Hollywood and giving them an Avenue to, to do different things. Oh, I wonder what Steven Seagal would have, uh, would have <laughs> done with Netflix if that was around, you know, at that time. Yeah, the Patreon. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? The Patreon. Yeah, a good point. Yeah, it's it's this Patreon could have been it would have probably been right on Netflix. I mean, he that's probably what Netflix would have done back then is they probably would have swooped in and, and, and given parts to, you know, Stallone, Van Damme, Seagal, and and uh, this would have been this production company that Seagal was starting at that time would have been yeah. perfect for them. Well, look at Adam Sandler. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the whole uh, the Happy Madison. You know, collab. You know, the that was kind of the first big uh, collaboration with Netflix and uh, and Adam Sandler and releasing all all, uh, all those you know ridiculous six and all that kind of stuff. 
yeah. that could have been Steven Seagal and all his, you know, all his DTV movies uh, had it been had it been that time, and he could have his production company could have uh, potentially uh, kept going at that, you know, at that stage. But you know, yeah. a lot's changed in 20 years, hasn't it? So. <laughs> right, exactly. We think about it now with all of the, you know. I don't have as big of a Seagal collection as you like Adolph Lundgren, but, um, you know, people that collect those movies, um, I know uh, Simon, Explosive Action, he has his, mm-hmm. he's always showing movies from his Seagal collection. You wouldn't be able to get it now. You wouldn't get a collection because they, if they were, if he was in bed with Netflix like that, they wouldn't be releasing them. They'd just be straight on Netflix and you'd have to have a, a, a subscription if you wanted to watch them. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things we're, we're moving away from, say physical media and, and becoming this sort of like digital only sort of streaming experiencing and then it's only sort of like hardcore collectors and you know people with disposable income who can really collect the discs uh, right. we're just getting so used to uh, i mean a lot some people just uh, you know there's always the piracy problem and stuff as well but the the having physical copies i mean even i you know i try i i promote physical releases and and you know uh, i keep an eye on it and that but i don't really buy anything i just don't have the disposable income to do so so my sort of threshold for what i'm willing to pay to watch a movie has kind of been dictated by my subscriptions to prime and netflix and what i experience and you know sort of the average you know how much how much is this costing me so so i would say it works out about i'd say it works out about two pounds per film that I might watch, perhaps less, uh, depending on how much you watch it. But some people could watch, like, you know, some people could watch so many in a month that they work out at pennies, you know, or, or cents in, in your case. But um, so the, the the perceived value is on a on a, on buying a physical release, you know, has to be quite considerable, really. Uh, and it's really, I mean, I want to I want to eventually complete my cigar collection by picking up. Uh, quite a, those, a few of the sort of later discs because I've, I've only got really uh, the ones going up to sort of 2010 maybe uh, so I've got like nearly um, I've got like 10 years worth to, to catch up on and he's, and he's done a lot of releases <laughs> in that time <laughs> yes. so even, even even if they're really cheap uh, I'm still looking at a fairly considerable outlay to, to gather those discs but um, I will do it one day uh, because right. otherwise, because at some point they won't exist anymore. They'll be out of print and they won't be available. Yeah, because I mean, that's. I don't know if, if you had the similar situation that we had in the United States here in the um, in in the the two thousands. It's kind of the late two thousands. There was just like this proliferation of used DVDs like everywhere. Um, just all kinds of places that sold used DVDs, and so you could get any Seagal flick from the 2000s, Dolph Lundgren flick, any of those for like you know no more than than, than four or five dollars um, US. And so it, you know now you don't see those places. Now it's like um, you know it's it's hard to find. I, you know there, there's you know thrift store places that you know have used goods that you might be able to sift through however many copies of Titanic or something like that to see if uh, there's a you know one that you're looking for in there for a good price. But it, it, nowadays it's hard. To, to even make those you know do that kind of shopping that you used to be able to do a lot yeah there's very few i think there's uh, there's a couple of uh, outlets you know a couple of um chain stores over here but they, they used to used to they've got we got places like pound land so everything costs one pound is, is the idea and they used to have big dvd selections of basically you know the big stores have all these you know all the the, the big uh, distributors 
have all this uh, extra stock, they're not able to shift it to to the big sellers or Amazon or whoever, so they just sell it off cheap to to these sorts. And you could get some quite interesting stuff in there, and it was all brand new, sealed, uh, and stuff. And then over time, it became uh, that you couldn't really buy anything new; everything was like reconditioned right. DVDs. So they 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 cleaned them up, they wrapped them in cellophane again, but they are secondhand still. And then you've got the secondhand places uh, or the stores where you could buy secondhand games and, and DVDs. Uh, but there's there's very few around, and a lot of places, you know, it is still Amazon is kind of one of the sort of go-to places. But then you've got to pay postage and packing and, and stuff to get to get stuff. And sometimes it just doesn't really work out, you know, uh, affordable that way. So if, you know, we uh, charity shops, you know, so, uh, I don't know what the you, what, what would you call them? Uh, I think it might be Goodwill. Might be our Goodwill. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. you got the place like that that you could hunt down. You know, it's like VHS tapes. You know, yes. there was a point where you could just get VHS tapes all over the place, and now you literally can't find the VHS tape anywhere. Uh, yeah. They're just completely gone. Uh, and I really regret getting rid of mine. You know, it's like although they took up a, a huge amount of space, which was why I had to get get rid of them, most of them. Uh, I do think, uh, you know. If I'd have just held on to them a bit longer, <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, because you know, lost some some quite good stuff that you know I'll probably not really be able to get back again. And uh, yeah, it's just amazing, you know. And at some point, nothing else has come along to replace DVD or Blu-ray. It's just digital, uh, and digital has its limitations, as we all know, uh, in terms of you know you might buy something on iTunes or something, and then and then Apple go. Actually, we're we're not going to serve that film anymore, <laughs> even right. though you bought it, and, and they just delete it or or something. So, yeah, we're gonna uh, we're gonna end up in a, at a point where there aren't even any DVDs or, or Blu-rays around. I think you know, in the, and it's not in the not too distant future. So it's gonna be it's gonna be quite a weird weird place for films. I think in in terms of you know film ownership. Yeah, because it seems like the, the Blu-ray market right now is, you know, cult classics, right? Those mm. limited edition or, or, you know, companies like yeah. Arrow that are putting yeah. out like just, just you know, and, and they're expensive. They're they're like real premium prices. And so it's it's not even like they're affordable, um, you know, there's, you know, but they, they have so many extra, you know, Easter eggs and goodies with them that, you know, for real collectors, they're, they're a really great buy, but it, it seems like that's the market. It doesn't seem like there's a market anymore for just a, yeah, like you said, the, 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 the DVD market just for outside the collector is, is starting to go away. And, and, and I think part of it is, it's just that ease of, like you said, it's a combination of things where, you know, you're paying a certain amount per month anyway for the subscription service. So you feel like you've got to, you know, watch enough films to make the price per film worth it. Yep. And then on top of that, yeah, you, you know, it, it, you, you, there's the ease, too, of, of, you know, the clutter, the less clutter, all of those kinds of things. And I, I think you're right. I think you're going to see a point where it, it I think you know, I think that collector's market will always be there for, for movies. But I think after that, I think, it, you know, you know, people are, are going to find that that, yeah, you, you're not going to be able to get the DVDs like you thought. You're, 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 you know, when, it, when a movie comes out, it's. It, it's going to have a kind of a limited Blu-ray release for a big one, like a like some of the Marvel movies and things like that. But I, I think people, 
nowadays they're just they're just going to stream it. They're just going to subscribe to whatever the streaming service is that has it, and and that's going to be what the fight is, right? It's going to be fighting over who who has the movie, right? Disney Plus took all of their Marvel stuff to, over to their thing. Now, you know, so does somebody want to add on to that? Or, yeah, you know, if you want your Marvel movies, you got to do that now. That, that, that's probably what's going to be the, the, the future, is that everybody's going to be fighting over who has the rights and who can stream the movie. Yeah. And what I find odd is when you've got the, the same movie turning up on the different services, like uh, Steven Seagal's uh, Merce, well, it's got a different type absolution and mercenary, yeah. the abs- mercenary absolution. Uh, that is available or, or was available on, I think it was on Netflix and it was on Prime. But it was on the different titles on both, <laughs> which I thought was really odd. And there was, an, oh, and on the same sort of uh, topic, uh, the, the Sylvester Stallone film Detox turned up on Netflix over here recently. A week up. I picked up an old DVD copy of it a while back, and we did a we did it as our throwback film uh, a while back when it wasn't really available. And then suddenly now, a few weeks later, it's on Netflix, um, but they've got it listed under its alternate title of ICU, right. which is I think what it came out on DVD as. But but the film itself, when you watch it, is still called Detox. Right. So <laughs> yeah. it's listed as one title, but actually the title the, the title comes up as another, which is really odd. <laughs> I wonder yeah. how people, how many people get confused by that. Well, but, uh, I don't know how that happens. But. Yeah, here in the US, there's one. Um, I think it was either our cable on demand or or one of those services. They had the Seagal film Cartel, um, which is oh, also Killing known Salazar. as Killing Salazar. They had both in the same system, and right. and I was like, I, I looked at because I was like, oh, I I saw Cartel. I was like, oh, what is Killing Salazar? Maybe that was like a prequel or something. And then <laughs> I I started watching. I was like, no, this is the this is Cartel. And yeah, I looked it up and up. found out that yeah, they're the same movie, but they were literally like. Side by side, like, you know, if you look up Steven Seagal, they were both listed as ones that you could watch. And uh, so that was kind of funny that they, they <laughs> the alternative title, it was the same exact movie. Everything else about it was the same, but it just had the, the, the different title and the different, you know, box art and all of that. I think that's, that one is, I think, one of the few examples I can think of where I, I believe it, it was released in the U.S. after uh, the U.K. Because we got it, we got it as Killing Salazar. And then I started seeing all these adverts for cartel or whatever and i was like um oh hang on they've retitled it (laughs) (laughs) they've given it a new name um uh on the flip side we haven't had uh general commander that's the one steven seagal film that's you know that's not not, as yet not been made available over here so i can't stream it i can't you know can't get a dvd of it it's just not it's not available so I've, i've heard it's not very good but i still you know and i still need to need to see it along with the uh, yeah. The law. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's available here for rent on streaming, so you can rent it for like three dollars to stream, but it's not a part of any packages yet. And like, like I said, Beyond the Law technically isn't a part of any packages either. It's just this one, um, this this one service, Hoopla, which is essentially like you're renting it from your, you're, you're borrowing it from your library. Um, yeah. Debt, debt I'd love it if we had that over here. We can get audio books and, and magazines and newspapers and stuff, but they yeah. haven't done. Uh, streaming i think I, that'd be a great idea for if we yeah. could we could do that <laughs> yeah because it's a it's a great thing so all you do is just use your 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 library account and you get like four movies a month is the, the way it works you can watch four movies a month so it's so it's not like an unlimited thing but also it doesn't cost any money so um there's no advertisements or anything like that and um yeah it's 
it, it's a shame. Yeah, it, it, I think it would be a really great service if they had it over there. Because I, I was telling um, Ty and Brett from Comeuppets about it because they were looking into it as well. Like, but I, I don't remember how I found. I think I found it through Letterboxd. Um, so Letterboxd here in the U.S. it tells you what streaming services have a movie and and Hoopla came up. I was like, oh, what is this Hoopla? And yeah, it turned out I was like, oh, this isn't this isn't a bad deal. Um, um, but it means you know I usually have to watch it, get my images for the site, and all that. Do it really quickly because you know again I only have the movie for a short period of time. What's the what? How long do they let you keep a film for? I think they let you keep it for, is it forty eight hours? Yeah, I hours, think. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not a long period, but it's you know I think there's there's certain rules too. I think it's like once you start the movie is when the, yeah, the period yeah, starts. Yeah. Uh, that's usually that's the same rule basically for when you do a a, a video on demand kind of thing, isn't it? It's usually. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you can pay for it now, but it's only really when you actually start watching it that the 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 the, the, the Ticking clock styles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think it's the same thing with Hoopla. I, I like I said, it's been. A, I, 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 well, I can't remember the last thing I watched because I, I was going to watch Debt Collectors actually, and I was going to watch. I haven't still haven't watched Beyond the Law yet, but um, uh, yeah, they're um, they're on there, and the, the movie Acceleration, the Dolph movie that I yeah. did recently, that was on there before I, I, I checked that out. But I mean, they don't have a great. They don't have the hugest selection. It's just that. Every once in a while, there's one that doesn't overlap with all the other streaming services, so, so it's uh, it's nice and not having to pay, you know, the three bucks or whatever it is to rent them. I mean, none of these are movies that are the real high-end, you know, expensive VOD movies. And that's the and that's the ones we care about, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is, this is what we love. This is what we love. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, Richard, it was a really great conversation. We kind of did a, a sort of a secondary conversation there about the state of DTV, which was really cool as well to sort of have that in there um, in, in addition to what we were t- discussing before. Yeah, I'm sorry. I do, I do rattle on sometimes. I, no. I, I, I apologize. <laughs> no, the exact same thing happened when I had Ty and Brett on from Cuppets, only we were doing D- uh, video or VHS yeah, video memories. Yeah, memories. Yeah, so the so same thing, it's almost like the after show. We, we were joking, it was like the after show. So it was good. Almost the same thing happened here. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's funny how that works. It's, uh, I think it's one of those things where we, we, you know, we get talking about these kinds of things, and they're not conversations that we have all the time with other people. So it's like mm-hmm. once you get started to talk about it, it's like it's just sort of uh, it, it, it's easy to, to, to keep going and, and, and keep discussing it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you again, Richard, for coming on. It was really a great time. Um, and again, just before we wrap up, um, where where can people find the uh, the, the podcast and your social media? Uh, so it's the DTV Digest. Uh, we we on uh, I, I believe uh, I believe we're on iTunes, but we've also got um, uh, Podbean, which is actually where I listen to uh, quite a lot of uh, other shows myself, like. Uh, you're on TalkShoe, aren't you? I usually get those. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I'm considering moving, but yeah, right now I'm on TalkShoe. Yeah, so we, our address, to, if you wanted to get all our all the, all the episodes that are available, unfortunately, um, a bit like a, a bit like your situation, we've you know we've been going for a long time, but it's only quite a, a lot of our more recent episodes that are actually available um, because of moving services or whatever in our case. So the the dtvdigest.podbean.com is the is the address, uh, but you can find us via Twitter and Facebook uh, by looking up uh, the DTV Digest and say look look for me uh, R S H uh, DTV uh, is on on Twitter, and uh, yeah always happy to 
chat movies and, and uh, talk about uh, talk about all this all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Thank you again for coming on, Roger. It was a really great time. Uh, it's brilliant. Thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, our site again, dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com. And again, uh, my novel out now, Chad and Accounting. You can go on uh, Amazon, just type in Chad and Accounting and find it there. But uh, thank you again, Richard, for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, till next time, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.